Well, good morning. It's so good to be with you all uh, this morning, as it always is. Uh, just a couple of things, uh, just by way of kind of prelude. Number one is uh, greetings from, from Meadowcroft. Uh, I do miss being with them this morning, but oh, do we want to adjust that? Is that better? Okay. Can you still hear me? <laughs> uh, we, uh, I am missing being with them this morning, but it is always so good uh, to be with you all uh, here at Ironworks. And uh, the second thing uh, I just want to mention is that I always forget that you guys have kind of like a different aesthetic in here. It's a little more dim. So I did bring my reading glasses, so I'm not sure if I'm going to need them or not. Uh, I keep, I think I said this last time I was here, I keep increasing the font on my uh, sermon. I should probably just give in and get real glasses at some point, but so just if you know the glasses come off and on, that's why. Uh, and then the third thing is I just really wanted to, to commend you all uh, because sabbaticals are, are rare, uh, but they're so important and so needed and so grateful uh, that uh, that you guys have given Robbie this, uh, this time, uh, this summer. Um, it is a sacrifice uh, for you all, uh, but I think it's also a really beautiful thing. We did the same thing last summer for our senior pastor, um, and it's really good, obviously, uh, for uh, the pastor to have the time off, but I think it's also really good for the church because it's just another reminder that it's ultimately Jesus who builds the church, not just one or two people. Um, and so very grateful that you guys are uh, in this season uh, of sacrifice and also for everyone that, is, that has stepped up. I know that's a lot of you. Uh, so just wanted to commend you uh, for that. Um, I am going to read our uh, sermon passage, which is, uh, we're going to drop right in uh, to the book of Philippians, uh, which if you've, if you've been to church uh, before, Philippians might be one of the more uh, familiar uh, books. And even if you uh, haven't uh, or you haven't read Philippians before, hopefully this will be, this will be beneficial. So I'm going to read this passage and then uh, pray for us one more time and we'll dive in. So our text today is Philippians chapter 1, uh, verses 27 to 30. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have." This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us once more. Lord, thank you so much for this time together. Thank you for the songs uh, that we've sung, sung the opportunity uh, to confess our sins, to be reminded of your forgiveness, and also to bring our uh, requests before you. We're so grateful for your word, grateful that you are a speaking God, and we pray this morning that you would encourage us uh, and grow us and continue to build your church uh, as we look into your word together. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So it can often uh, be difficult to respond with, with calm in the midst of situations uh, that feel chaotic. I was reminded of this uh, recently because we were teaching our oldest daughter, uh, Caroline, how to drive. And I promise you uh, that when I was riding with her uh, while she was learning, and even still, I, I was trying so hard <laughs> to be super calm and, and cool and uh, collected uh, when I was over there in the, the passenger seat. And I wish I could tell you, especially on Father's Day, that I did a really good job, but I will say that uh, I did not. Let's say I, I didn't always pass this test with, with flying colors, and you can ask 
uh, Caroline. You can ask the other kids who would often notice me like grabbing onto things when we would approach turns a little too quickly uh, and things like that. It was very easy for me to like blurt something out, like, like stop or slow down, like really quickly and be impatient uh, when I didn't think she was making the right choice. I really did try to be calm uh, and confident, but I was often uh, the opposite. I was very jumpy and anxious. And, and a little bit in, in my defense, some of you have been through this as parents, it's just, it feels very unnatural uh, for somebody that used to kind of like hold them as a baby. Now they're driving you around like, what? What is going on? It's a very chaotic uh, situation. I will tell you, thankfully, uh, that my daughter Caroline was, was very gracious, I think, about all of it. She did uh, get her license uh, and did a great job. We all survived. Today she's driving, later today she's driving uh, to the beach uh, by herself for the first time with one of her friends, so hopefully that will go well. Um, but I hope that I learned some lessons uh, along, uh, along that time of, uh, that will help me when, when the other kids learn how to drive. Uh, we'll see if I'm a little bit more calm with them. I'm not entirely uh, optimistic because it is, it is difficult to respond well in those situations that feel chaotic. Our passage today is from a letter that was written by a man named Paul, who was facing uh, many challenges to, to a church in a city named Philippi, uh, and they were facing some challenges of their own. Uh, Paul had helped to start uh, this Philippian church, and Paul had a really close relationship with this, with this church, and it comes through again and again in this letter. And Paul was in prison. And he wanted to help them uh, to respond to the challenges that they uh, were facing. And part of this response for the Philippians is how they are going to respond in the midst of a situation that feels chaotic and their unity and togetherness with one another as they deal with these things. So this is a really short uh, passage uh, that we're looking at today, but I think we'll see there's, there's actually a lot here for us. We'll see a couple things uh, as we go through it. First, we're going to see how the Philippians were to relate to one another in the church Second, we're going to see how they were to relate to those who opposed them. And then finally, we'll see how they were relate to Paul and also to the Lord that they have in common. And of course, as we talk about these things, we're going to think about how this letter to an ancient church in Philippi has so much to say to us today because we also live in a time where the church does face opposition. And this can make things feel out of, out of whack and, and feel chaotic for us. And we live in a time when the pressures of living in a divided world can make unity, even in the church, feel increasingly difficult. And this passage, I think, will help us to see how, how God works in his word and throughout history and how he is still working now. Because in all of these challenges, there is so much opportunity for the church to stand out in a beautiful and compelling way. Paul is going to challenge his readers, and he's going to do so in a way that gives them a vision of what their life together might look like by the grace of God. So we begin uh, today in verse 27. I'll read that verse again. It says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So our passage begins with that word only, uh, which the way that, that Paul uses it here, it, it's a very strong word in the original language. Paul is saying, look, there is one thing that is really important, and I really want you to give attention to it. And that one thing is, is their conduct or the, the manner of life, as it's translated here. Paul tells them that it's really important that their lives be worthy of the gospel of Christ. 
Now, that is kind of a loaded phrase, and we have to ask, well, what does Paul mean by that? If we're not careful, that, that word worthy can, can trip us up a little bit. It might sound like Paul is telling them that, that they need to earn something, that, that their conduct is going to be the determining factor in, in whether or not God would love them. And of course, that's often the default position of our hearts, that, that we need to work, that we need to earn our way into God's favor. And this, of course, is not what Paul is saying. So what is he saying? Well, it's helpful to think about the way that Paul has been building his argument uh, in the book of Philippians. As one commentator put it, Paul has talked about the gospel in three different ways just in chapter one of the letter. I know we're dropping into the end of this chapter. But back in verse seven, he talked about defending the gospel. And then later in the chapter, Paul talked about proclaiming the gospel. And now here in this section, what Paul is doing is he's talking about adorning the gospel or showing off the gospel. He's asking, how can these Philippians live in a way that shows off how good the news of the gospel actually is? What kind of conduct is it that will point people to the goodness of God and the goodness of this gospel message? That's what Paul is getting at here. And Paul is also getting at something else because he knows who he is talking to. See, Paul's message uh, did not change, but the way that he talked about it did because he knew that, that different people needed to hear God's truth in different ways. And so he tailors this instruction for this church in Philippi. The words that, that, that he uses here about conduct and, and a manner of life uh, that is worthy have overtones of what it looked like to represent, to be a citizen who represents a kingdom. And this would have really resonated with the Philippians because many of them were considered Roman citizens. And this was a source of, of great civic pride in Philippi. Being part of Rome was a very important part of living in the city of Philippi. And so Paul is taking a concept that, that they are familiar with, and he's applying it to what it means for them to follow Jesus. And their relationship with Rome was an important factor in the situation that they were in, which we're going to see. And as to this conduct that they are called to, Paul says he desires for them to be living in this way, whether he is with them or not. Now, as I said earlier, my, my oldest daughter uh, recently got her driver's license, so I'm learning that there are definitely different phases uh, to being a parent. Uh, one of the things I'm, I'm enjoying about the present kind of stretch uh, that we are in is that my wife, Catherine, and I have, have a little bit more flexibility than we used to. Uh, when, when the kids were, were really little, obviously, we had to kind of be present uh, with them all the time. And so it was like a matter of like asking permission to like go take a shower or something like that, right? And that's a great gift, right, in, in, in many ways to be constantly present with your kids. But it also means that you're constantly on call. You can't just wander off uh, for a few hours. But now that, that the kids are older, we can, we can start to do some things without making like hundreds of preparations in advance. Like last night, we're like, hey, we need to go to the store. We went together. It was great. And we just went. So we can do that. We can go out together. We can run an errand together, whatever it is. And, and we know that when we do that, generally speaking, things at the house, at least in the short term, will go about the same whether we are there or not. It's a sign of, of our kids' growing maturity that, that we can feel pretty confident about that. And Paul knows that this is what maturity looks like for the Philippians as well. He wants them to mature to the point that, that whether he is present with them or not, he can feel confident that they are living in a way that is showing off the gospel. 
Now, if you read the beginning of this letter, you'll see that, that Paul had some uncertainty in his life because he was in prison and he wasn't absolutely positive when he'd be able to be with them or whether he'd be able to be with them or not. He didn't know if he'd be released from prison. He didn't know for sure. He, he might even die there. He wasn't positive. And elsewhere in, in his letters, we hear that Paul talks about this anxiety that he feels for his churches. Paul is concerned for this church and he wants to be at rest knowing that the Philippian church is living out what they have been taught and what they believe. So all that brings us back to the main question. What is this conduct specifically that Paul is so concerned about? What is it that he especially wants to hear when he hears about the Philippian church? He wants to hear that they are united, standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And with this, Paul is beginning to address one of the things that he has heard about the Philippian church that he wants to see corrected. He has heard that there are divisions, which he's going to touch on later in the letter, and that people are at odds. And of course, this is a problem in and of itself, but especially given what Paul is going to get to in this passage, that the Philippian church is facing opposition, that they're going to need one another. This is not the time for, for unnecessary division, but for unity. Paul wants them to stand firm, and he wants them to strive. It will take effort. It will be hard. It's not going to be easy, but he wants them to do this together. Now, we should note that, that when Paul talks about unity here, he's not just talking about some bland unity for the sake of unity. He tells them to contend together for the faith of the gospel. They are to be united in the gospel. They're not called to agree on every single issue. They're not called to agree on every single interpretation of God's word, but they are called to contend for the gospel. And that is why when, when you join a church in our denomination, I know some of you probably are members, some of you may not be, but when you join a church in the Presbyterian Church in America, we ask people very important, but also very basic questions about following Jesus. We ask, are, are you acknowledging your own sin and your own need of Jesus? Are you trusting in him alone for your life, both now and in eternity? Are you in reliance on the Holy Spirit going to strive to follow Jesus? Are you going to pursue the peace and unity and purity in the church? Are we going to support the church to the best of our ability? These are all very, very basic things that we ask. We don't ask people you know, whether they agree with every aspect of our theology. We don't ask them if they will promise to like love every song that we sing, or, or you have to really appreciate every sermon that I preach. No, we don't, we don't do that. We don't ask people if they agree with us about what the most pressing societal need is and how the church should respond. Because there's going to be a lot of diversity along all those issues, right? And that's okay. Unity in the church done well is a robust unity grounded in the gospel and it's also not a rigid conformity that means that everyone has to constantly be on the same page about everything. That's actually where true health and true beauty lies as we unify around the essential areas and hold to our opinions generously, graciously, and loosely in those other areas. And in that unity that's grounded in the gospel, we can, we can talk about all those other things joyfully because it doesn't feel like a huge threat for us to talk about them. They're not ultimate things. So when we talk about unity, it's good for us to take stock of a few things, to consider the priorities set by Scripture, to consider our, our, our own witness, uh, generally speaking, as a Christian church, and to consider our cultural moment. 
As to the priority set by scripture, unity is certainly high on the list. The New Testament is just dripping with calls for our unity. Jesus himself prayed for our unity in John 17 in what is known as his high priestly prayer. He prayed that we would be one just as he and the Father are one so that the world would believe in Jesus. Paul's letters continually call churches to be unified across all kinds of boundaries, ethnic and cultural. One Bible scholar says that unity is the highest calling of the church. And even if you don't agree that it's the highest calling, it is certainly a high biblical priority. So that's the the priority. Now let's consider the witness of the church. And this is an area where the church, again, generally speaking, has not always demonstrated the goodness of God's truth. It's easy for churches and even denominations to, to split up, divide over issues that are not worth dividing over. And it's also really easy to just kind of gather some people together with, you know, the same sociological background, maybe the same political background, and just kind of come together and and not have those challenges. When that happens, the church suffers. And this mixed witness of the church is set against a backdrop. The backdrop right now of our cultural moment, which we always need to think about, where suspicion and anger and polarization are are just the norms of the day. TV news shows that that tell us that that we are the righteous ones and we need to be mad at our idiotic opponents. Politicians who belittle and dehumanize their opponents. Political violence becoming more acceptable in the eyes of many. An explosion in all kinds of dubious conspiracy theories. We live in a cultural moment full of suspicion and anger and division. And it's easy for those attitudes, if we're not careful, to slip into the church. But with every threat, with every challenge, there is a beautiful opportunity, and we need to see this. Even as we see the ways we have fallen short and the context of our cultural moment, we recognize that God has graciously given us this opportunity, this time, for us to stand out for him in the midst of an angry and divided world. Against that backdrop of anger and division, the peace and the unity of the church across the lines that the world considers sometimes sacred will stand out in a compelling and beautiful way. The world will know that we follow Jesus because of our love for one another and our unity together. It was true in Philippi, and it's absolutely true now. And this unity is especially important for the Philippians and for us, given what they were dealing with as we continue to see in verse 28. Verse 28 continues, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. So we learn from this passage that the Philippians have opponents, and we don't necessarily know a ton about those who oppose them, but we can surmise that that, that there would have been plenty of pressure in a heavily Roman city like Philippi, to give the proper allegiance to Rome and even possibly the proper worship to the Roman emperor. They may have had to choose at times between their nation and their God. And if they chose wrongly in the eyes of those around them, they could have suffered persecution. And this is a theme that that continues today. In some places, it's just not okay to worship Jesus. And then there's other places where where it's kind of okay, but it better not interfere with your allegiance to your nation. And if it does, then it's a problem. We even have this truth uh, in our history in America as well. It's almost July 4th. There's a lot of good that comes with that. You can also read about clergy 
who didn't agree with the revolution. Read about how they were treated before and during the revolution in America. It wasn't pretty. The love of a nation can and many times does come into conflict with the love of God. And there are many types of opposition, and the Philippians were, were facing it on some level. But the larger question here is not exactly what type of opposition uh, was happening, because Paul doesn't really get too far into that, but how should they respond, react to this opposition? Well, Paul says they are not to be frightened in anything by their opponents. Now, that word for frightened there, as one scholar pointed out, relates to the uncontrollable stampede of startled horses. <laughs> That is quite a picture, I think. I'm not around horses much. I'm not a big animal person because everything just kind of feels uncertain around them. Like, what are they going to do, right? I, 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 just, I just don't love it. One of my least favorite things uh, is being around an easily startled animal. They are panicked. You don't know what they're going to do next. To me, it's just, it's just not a good scene. probably says more about me than it does about the animal, but that's just how I feel. And that's what Paul is telling the Philippians. Don't act like a startled animal when you face opposition. It feels like a low bar, but, but if we're honest, we know it's very easy to, to get all amped up, to get scared, to get frightened in the world that we live in. It's easy to, to, to look around. When we look around and we see so much change, it's easy to be scared when, when foundational truths that many of us may have taken for granted, be they about gender or sexuality or political extremism or a host of other issues, when those things that we took for granted don't seem to be accepted anymore. But our response to all of this is what is so important. Because the fear and the anxiety that can result in these situations can be very harmful to us and to the church. In fact, there's a very direct tie-in here to the unity that Paul called the Philippians to. Because it's not easy to be united when there is a spirit of anxiety and fear pervading the church. Because anxiety and fear can, can lead us to that feeling that, that things are really out of control. And that makes it really tempting for us to kind of go after others that we don't see eye to eye with, and it's a challenge. But again, Paul and ultimately Jesus holds out a better way. And it's a way that we see in the Bible and in much of church history, the way of calmly trusting in the Lord in the moments of chaos. We think of, of one well-known biblical account of Jesus in the boat, and there's a storm raging and what is Jesus doing? He is sound asleep as his disciples are like out of their mind with panic, right? And they come and, and they wake him up and he stills the storm. Not anxious, not panicked. He was in complete control. Now, unlike Jesus, we are not <laughs> in complete control. But we know the one who is. And this is reflected elsewhere in the Bible and elsewhere in church history. Think about Paul himself, the one who wrote this letter, and consider how the Philippian church began. I'll give you the short version. It's, it's from Acts 16. Paul is in jail in Philippi, which is chaotic and uncertain enough. And then there's an earthquake, and, and all the locks are broken, and the jailer is ready to take his own life because he assumes that the prisoners are gone and that he's done for. And then there's Paul calm voice in the midst of the chaos, caring for the very man who has kept him in jail and telling him, look, don't worry, we are all here. And the jailer himself responds by coming to believe in Jesus. One of the best stories, there's a lot of them, 
One of the best stories in church history is about a man named Polycarp, a man, old man who lived about 100 years after Paul did. And even though he was very old, he ended up being persecuted by the Roman government. And when his captors came for him, he did two things. Number one, he asked permission to go and pray because he knew he was probably being taken to his death. And number two, he made sure that his captors, who had come to bring him and arrest him, he made sure that they had food to eat. Not panicking, not lashing out at those who opposed him, but calmly trusting in the Lord to take care of him. And I can only imagine what impact that had on those that were around him, including those that came to arrest him. The stories go on and on. Early church history under hostile Roman domination. The majority black church in America in the midst of slavery and and Jim Crow and the struggle for civil rights. The persecuted church around the world responding to chaos, not with fear, but with a calm trust in the Lord who controls all things, even the chaos. And this is the beautiful way that Jesus calls us to pursue. One author uh, calls this the opportunity of the non-anxious presence. Can we live with confidence in, in the Lord in a cultural moment marked by anger and division and fear? See, that's what Paul is pointing to for the Philippians, and he says something interesting to them about the effects of living in this way. He says that living in this way is a clear sign to their opponents that they will be destroyed, but that the Christians will be saved. What does Paul mean when he says this? Well, when the Philippian church confidently, humbly, and cheerfully faces opposition, it helps them to be assured that Jesus has indeed saved them because they can see that that he is changing them by the power of the Holy Spirit. And whether they recognize it or not, it is evidence to everyone around them that, that their opponents will not have the victory. Their confidence in the midst of opposition gives the world an alternate script to look to, and it's a script that points to the truth that these Christians will endure forever as God's people, and those who oppose God's people will ultimately be destroyed because God is the one who is in charge, and God has given salvation to those that he loves. And Paul expands on that theme of God's gifts in our last verses, 29 and 30. Paul says this, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, You should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Now, as Paul has said, the Christians in Philippi are facing opposition, and this opposition has made life difficult for them to the point that they are suffering as a result. And Paul wants to help them understand this. One commentator I was reading noted how how easy it is when we are suffering to feel like we are suffering because we have done something wrong. And yes, sometimes we do suffer because of our own sin or because of a lack of wisdom on our part, but there are also many times when this is not the case. And Paul wants them to know exactly why they are suffering so they can see it for what it is. Notice that this suffering is not something that just has randomly happened to them. The suffering, it says, has been granted to them. The suffering that the Philippians are enduring is a result not of their own failings, but of the generosity of the God who loves them. Just as God had given them the gift of faith to believe in Jesus, he's also given them the gift of suffering for his sake. Now, there are plenty of gifts uh, that God gives that are difficult to make sense of in this life. 
There, were many, there are many difficult things he brings our way where it is difficult to make sense of, of how this can come from the generous hand of a good God. Now, I do think that this passage helps us to see some of the good that is coming about for, uh, the, through the Philippians' suffering, but we should also acknowledge that this is not always the case. And you may be here today, and maybe you're suffering in a way where it is very, very difficult to see the good in it. One author called these very difficult things the, the inconsolable things, just very, very hard, very, very difficult. But also, hear what another author, C.S. Lewis, said of this difficult form of suffering. He said, some mortals say of some temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for it. Not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. He's saying that all of the suffering that we endure now, and I think especially the suffering that comes as a result of following Jesus that we will certainly see in eternity, how God is turning that suffering into a glory. And so in, in the meantime, when, when God allows us to catch, even if it's a little glimpse of the good that comes from suffering, we can know that, it, that it's just that, just a little glimpse, a little taste of what is surely to come. And we, and we have a couple of those glimpses here in this passage. First, we've already seen that the Philippian Christians suffering in a calm, united, non-panic, non-fearful way. It helps them. It helps them to be assured that they really do belong to Jesus. It's a sign to them of, of their salvation, and this salvation is from God. And second, we see in this section that this suffering helps to unite them, not only to one another, but also to others who are suffering. They have the joy of deeper unity with someone they love so much, with Paul. They are now suffering the same way that he is. And this is an encouragement to them, and it's also a tremendous encouragement to Paul. When we suffer in some way, right, it's so helpful to know that we're not alone, to be together with others who can understand what we're, what we're going through and truly sympathize with us. One thing I've always been, been very open about uh, at, at Meadowcroft, even when I'm preaching, is how I've had to deal with things like anxiety over the years. Very difficult. And I'm always encouraged when, when people tell me that they're in that struggle with me, not because I'm like excited that they're suffering too, but because I feel less alone. And I also know that now they feel less alone. And as a result, we can both be encouraged that others are indeed with us in our struggles. And that's true for whatever suffering we have to deal with. You know, our ultimate enemy, Satan, he would love for us in our suffering to feel like we're alone and that no one else is dealing with what we are dealing with. But when we find others suffering in the same way, we feel less alone. We feel more understood. And these are precious gifts when they happen in the church. What a gift it must have been to Paul to see the Philippians enduring this same suffering well, even as he suffered and what a gift for the Philippians to see the joy and confidence of Paul that he displays as he writes this letter, even while he's in prison. And of course, this unity that the Philippians experience with Paul points to something much greater. It's a picture of their unity with Jesus. Their suffering, Paul says, is for the sake of Jesus, the one who suffered so greatly for those that he loved. No one suffered more than him. As Paul and the Philippians dealt with the Roman Empire, so certainly did Jesus, suffering at the hands of that empire and also at the hands of his fellow Israelites who wanted to kill him. And Jesus suffered and died on a Roman cross 
And while our suffering is certainly different from the suffering of Jesus, our suffering for him does help us to understand our unity with him. And so as we see this suffering, we return again and again to the larger context, the larger sweep of human history. Why can the Philippians remain calm and confident in the midst of opposition? Why was Paul able to remain calm and confident in the midst of so much opposition, even in chains? And why can we remain calm and confident in the midst of opposition? Because we are united with Jesus, the one who is Lord over all things and the one who gave himself for us, the one whose suffering was followed by triumph, the triumph of the resurrection, showing that that death and his opponents would not have the final word, and the one who will return someday and make all things new, removing all of his and our opposition and removing all of our suffering. Earlier, we talked about church history and the ways that the church is is called to, to respond to opposition. We heard about Polycarp. The early church was certainly not perfect. We know this from Paul's letters and from many church historians, but there was so much evidence of God's grace at work in their midst, especially in the midst of suffering and opposition. There's a book that I can highly recommend uh, by a guy named John Dixon. It's called Bullies and Saints. It's the best church history book I've ever read. And he describes the early church in this way. He says this, For the first three centuries, Christians seemed like good losers. They believed they had already received the greatest reward, God's love through Christ's death and resurrection. And they were sure that his story of suffering, followed by vindication, was also theirs. They would win. They had won, even when they lost. All that was required of them as they waited for God's kingdom was prayer, service, persuasion, and endurance of hardship. Jesus had given them a beautiful tune, and they were going to sing along. It is such a beautiful tune. And it's a tune that we sing with one another and with all those who profess faith in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Together with all those throughout history and together with all those throughout the world, together with all those who are suffering great persecution for their faith and together with one another, real flesh and blood people that God has brought together to walk through this life in unity around him. It's such a precious gift. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much for your goodness and kindness towards us. And we thank you for the gift of the church. Thank you that together we can walk through this life even as we see opposition. And Lord, I pray that you would help us uh, to show one another and to show the world the beauty of the gospel through our unity together. Lord, thank you so much for Ironworks and thank you so much that we have had the chance to gather now. We pray that uh, you would help us more and more to reflect this beautiful gospel to the world. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.